0: and enjoy the show. The darkness has found you. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 5. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and I am positively elated that you could be here tonight. We have a rare two-story episode this evening, featuring Horror Hill newcomer Irving Crane, and also, a personal favorite of mine, the always excellent G.V. Anderson. So best not waste any time. Why don't you step into my parlor, you succulent little morsel? This particular spider is feeling very hungry, shall we? You're listening to the Standard Edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patreon in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Thank you for your support. Now, allow me to escort you to a place where the sun dies, when nightmares come to life. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. You haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. And now, without further ado, from author Irving Crane, I give you Dark Winter. Look, Daddy, an airplane! My son Cedric pointed up at the sky at the brilliant metallic dot, cutting a white line across the clear blue. This was something of a family tradition, When I saw airplanes as a little boy, I had to point them out. Now, my youngest took up the mantle. His older brother Colin had long since moved past such foolish, childish things. They wouldn't have seen this one if it hadn't been for the thinning leaves of the trees. We were playing a bit of catch before dinner, and the airplane had glinted at us from behind the bare topmost branches. The ball exchanged hands between my son and I a few more times before he exclaimed, "'Daddy! Daddy! I see another one! Another one!' I humored him and shielded my eyes and squinted. The air traffic overhead had increased in seconds. There were indeed two more planes just like the first, rather unusual for the skies over Hayrock Glen. The evening sunlight cast a golden hue to the chemtrails that slowly fanned out and made interesting colors.' I was moved to stand and watch along with my son. Those quiet, nondescript moments were what I enjoyed the most about being a father. Those seconds where the world held still just long enough for us to hear the distant bird song, watch the winking lights on the silent aircraft as they glided overhead. And we just existed without the weight of any great care or obligation. That was all about to change. We tossed the ball some more, keeping our eyes on the sky. At one point, we could see seven high-altitude flyers. When I could see over eleven, a funny feeling began to crawl into the back of my head. The feeling got stronger when I saw one or two of the planes do things I had never seen before. I thought their kind always flew in a straight line, some of them began to make sharp, erratic curves. Then, some of said aircraft got bigger, which means they were getting nearer, and something was wrong. There were flashes of light visible in the sky. We could have almost mistaken it for lightning had there been any clouds. Pops and bangs began to reach us, the kind that linger for a long time, as if echoing off the horizon in all directions. They were the sounds of war. One of the planes made a spiral with its chemtrail as it went into a tailspin. I instinctively ran for my son, even though the plane still had a lot of falling to do. Its trajectory changed just enough that it missed our yard. But not by much. It had passed by so closely that I could see inside the cockpit. The sound of the impact was deafening. That... Must have been the cue for all hell to break loose because other planes spewing their plumes of ice and exhaust shimmered as they came within heart stopping proximity of our small house, and debris and fire fell like rain. I taught my son to go down into the basement with Mommy, who was in the doorway nearly in hysterics. Me? I was rooted to the spot. I had to see how this would all unfold. One airplane glided so low that our trees touched its undercarriage and its chemtrail exhaust burned my nostrils and stung my skin. It skidded across the empty field at the bottom of our hill, like a great stone skipping on a pond. The other aircraft became apparent, the kind that were actually meant for acrobatics, American fighter jets. They darted among the slower, larger aircraft like hornets bringing down pigeons. It was in that moment that a detail pierced my senses. The planes that were being shot down had no markings. No numbers, no decals, no nothing. As if they were ghosts. But that was enough for me. I ran inside as another explosion rattled our windows and shook the ground. I joined my wild-eyed wife and our children in the basement, though I suddenly doubted if the basement would provide sufficient shelter from a falling airplane. The minutes crawled by. The din of war faded away. I was still uncertain about the safety of coming upstairs. But I did. I stuck my head outside to see empty skies and smell the oil and burning metal and other harsh aromas of slain aircraft. "'Honey, get the news on the television,' I called back into the house. Bursts of light from gunfire and explosions bubbled on the horizon, telling me that whenever fight there was, it had moved past us. What had I just witnessed? Had some sort of terrorist attack just been thwarted? As the sky calmed, so had my fears. Though I would find out very soon that my troubles had just begun.' Stepping into the house felt like crossing a threshold between insanity and normalcy. Suddenly, in the domestic ambience of the house, where my wife and two sons gathered around the television, she looked at me with her great, dark eyes. "'What's the new saying about all this, babe?' My wife wrinkled her nose when she saw me. "'You smell like you've been dunked in ammonia or something.' I was in such a heightened state that I had forgotten about the close encounter with the chemtrails from one of the doomed airplanes. Yeah, I got sprayed by something. I'll shower in a second. Is the news giving us anything at all? I can't find anything. There's no emergency broadcast or anything. Surely there had to be. Airplanes being shot down over American soil by our own fighter jets. There had to be something any minute. No news outfit worth their salt was going to just let a story opportunity like that just slide off the hook. Or were they? The sky was the last place I had seen anything about what had just happened. I slept uneasily that night. I kept grabbing my phone and looking to see if anything hit the news. The internet was eerily silent, reporting on everything else but the takedown of nondescript aircraft. I thought I would have been too short on sleep to get up with the alarm, but no. I made it just fine. There was that whole need to work for a living. I cursed myself for being a devoted father and husband, like I was. I'd even gotten up early enough to get out the door with a few extra minutes. I was sure the school wouldn't want to pay me any overtime, so I took the time to do a little patrol around the area and see if I could see anything. I remembered the crash in the cornfield that was visible from my own yard. Finding the wounded field had been a cinch. The landscape was bare like the surface of the moon. There was the earth, dug up and upset by the impact of the aircraft and the explosion, but there was no debris and no people, as if the plane that had been shot down evaporated and nobody thought it worthwhile to regulate rubbernecking. I stood next to the field of blackened cornstalks for a long moment, leaning on the hood of my truck with the door open, and the gentle sounds of Kenny Chesney drifting out. Nothing to see here. How convenient! I brushed off the conspiracy theory devil and went to work. Couldn’t keep the school waiting. There were waste baskets to empty from under teachers’ desks and from student bathrooms. Not to mention the mop work made for me from the kids just existing the world as i knew it seemed to go on as if nothing had happened but something had happened it would take several days for it to manifest the same way it takes autumn leaves a while to fall after turning colors i hadn't noticed the extra child or three that were in the nurse's office this had happened for a good four days in a row before i took notice their crying was on the level of a steam whistle their faces the color of ripe tomatoes. The volume of traffic to the school nurse never decreased after that. It increased, if anything. I would be pushing a broom across the old tiles and catch a glimpse of the nurse always looking the same way. Bewildered. One day, I didn't see the school nurse at all. I saw one of the teachers wearing the hapless, helpless expression reserved for the nurse. So she looked over the wall-to-wall mass of kids. Then there weren't any kids, any teachers, or anyone else at the school, and the doors were locked up until further notice. The intense headaches became a town-wide problem, and the small hospital was overwhelmed in less than three days. Men. Women and children had such agony locked up in their skulls that the only way they could find relief was through heavy sedation. And there wasn't enough of that stuff to go around. I was out of work with the school locked up, so I was at home full time with my wife, who couldn't stop screaming. She clawed at her scalp pressed her palms against her ears, rocked from side to side on the bed, unable to reach some caliper, some vice, some piston deep inside her skull that would not relent. I don't know that I have ever felt so helpless than I did right then. My wife was right there in front of me, locked in a suffering that I couldn't comprehend, and I couldn't do anything for her. I had tried running to the dollar store for some over-the-counter headache relievers, but they were closed in the middle of their business hours. Everyone must have been home with a migraine. I peered in through the windows. Their shelves of meds stood with gaping spaces where all the Tylenol, Advil, Aspirin, and similar used to be. I looked around at the landscape, pretty sure I could hear moans in the silence between breezes. My sighs rose in frozen clouds of mist. The air was getting colder by the day. There couldn't have been a worse time of year for things to go south like that. My chest tightened when I looked up at the radio tower. Someone was at the top right, next to the blaring red light that silently pulsed. Red alert. Red alert. Red alert. Under did a swan dive onto the earth below. There was no way that was an accident. I drove over to the twisted body of a teenage boy and called 911. There was no answer. I could barely process anything. I ran in several short directions all around the body, waiting for the solution to enter my brain. There was nobody to get. There was nothing I could do. The boy gazed up with his eyes that were just as blue, just as clear, as the sky that met his stare. I couldn't just leave him, but I couldn't do anything for him. My family needed me. I got home and did recon around the house, snatching up and hiding anything that I so much as suspected could be used as a tool for suicide. My wife started repeating over and over. Kill me. Kill me. Just kill me. I can't stand. Just kill me. She brought back the body of the boy into my memory, and he started to look more and more like her with each repetition. No sooner had I gotten home and shut the front door than it was drummed with frantic knocking. It was our neighbor, a kindly old gentleman named Frank that always had a greeting when we crossed paths. It was frantic saying that his wife had lost consciousness and became unresponsive after days of crushing headache. I was trying to get through to emergency services, but nobody was answering the phone. They had to have been glutted with cases. I remembered the nurse's office being wall-to-wall with kids. That's how I picture the Hayrock Glen Clinic. I felt guilty, telling Frank that I didn't know what to do. It was the truth, but it wasn't enough. He went inside his house, and we never saw him again. I brought a glass of water to my wife, who had somehow managed to fall asleep. I thought it would be cruel to wake her up. I leaned over her and felt a sinking feeling in my stomach. Her eyes were not completely closed. ''Babe?'' I prompted. She didn't answer. I gave her a gentle shake. Nothing. Then I gave her a gentle slaps on the cheek. Called her name with increasing volume. Her head lulled, but it was from my motions, not hers. She had a pulse and shallow breath. That was when time truly started to slow down for me. I kept the television on and tuned to the news. They weren't reporting anything pertinent at all. No mention of the airplanes or the pandemic of migraines that were causing people to pass out or commit suicide. I was just present enough to feed myself and the kids and put them to bed. The rest of me was poised to react to the slightest sign of stirring from my wife. For three days she was out like that. For three days nobody answered the phone at the hospital. Three days before she would open her eyes and weakly call my name. I almost wished she had kept her eyes closed. Then, I wouldn't have to know just how much worse things were going to get. When things were finally a billowing dumpster fire of a nightmare, the news finally started reporting on what was happening. I guided my wife to the restroom. Her eyes ticked all over as if they would suddenly start seeing. Her one free hand, the one that wasn't holding my hand, trembled as it felt the wall, like the shaking antennae of a cockroach. I didn't want to see her eyes, and yet I couldn't stop looking at them. They were completely clouded over, circles of grey adrift in their seas of white. After she was done mourning over the loss of her vision, we got on with helping her whenever she needed to go. She stubbornly tried to remember a few key paths around the house. We spent a lot of time in front of the television together. A plump, brunette woman prattled away as if everything had just been learned in the last hour. The entire United States has gotten a headache thanks to a pathogen that has researchers baffled as to its origins or its means of distribution. Seemingly overnight, businesses are shutting their doors, and hundreds of breadwinners are going to bed to sleep off a migraine that has broken all records of pain measurement. Nine out of ten people that succumb to the pathogen and the ensuing migraines will develop complete and total blindness. The camera switched to an aging woman wearing a white lab coat and thin-rimmed glasses. The inflammation is so intense that the optic nerves are crushed. But there's other data that suggests that the ensuing fever also cooks the retina. So, it's a double tap, you could say, of making sure that the infected lose their sight. They cut back to the reporter. There are some that are apparently immune to the pathogen, But they are the exception, by far. There was a knock at the door. I was about to go all out ballistic on whoever was on the other side of that door, wanting something at the worst possible time. It was the neighbor from across the street. The one that couldn't see. But he was accompanied by someone that could see. An older Mexican gentleman, Rory Mendez. Calm. Calm, you in there? I pinched both of my temples and opened the door, looking into the blind eyes of Ollie Griffith. Calm. Rory is trying to sell me something, and I can't tell if he's being straight with me or not. Well, for God's sake, Ollie, why not? Because I can't see! Well, what do you want me to do about it? Double-check the deal that he's given me. Make sure that he's given me what he says he is, and that he's making the payment we agreed to. I looked into Mr. Mendez's eyes and saw the frustration kindling there. As far as I knew, Rory was an honest man. The two of us that could see guided the one that couldn't back to his own property. Rory steered us toward a small pile of lumber stacked next to a larger one. He wants to buy a fourth of a cord for fifty bucks. Now I need you to make sure I'm giving him fifty and that he's getting a fourth. I gave Ollie a look that I knew he couldn't see. Part of me hoped that he could feel it. I went from being useless to being a critical component of a business deal that had nothing to do with me. I waited for some sign that his conscience might be getting heavy, but nothing. He stood waiting like any other old man waiting on customer service to clear the runway for his takeoff. All right, Ollie. You indeed have fifty dollars in your hand from Mr. Mendez, and his apportioned wood amounts to a fourth of a cord. if I have ever seen a fourth. Okay, Ollie said, with the pleasantness gone, as if dismissing a genie now that his wish had been granted. Rory and I exchanged looks. How are you holding up, Rory? I said with a knowing smirk. He shrugged. I might get some respect now that people can't see a Mexican. They both laughed. Our faces of amusement both burned out at the same pace, and the serious, sober glowering draped us. Think we can stay gainfully employed because of these? Rory said, pointing to his eyes. The work will be steady. I don't know about the pay. Rory flashed a grin of white teeth and nodded to the door. I'm not a stingy old shit comb. You need me? I'm right over there. Well, I appreciate you. He nodded and excused himself. Winter crept in and wouldn't let up. It was like a bad scene from a movie where all the characters are in the trash compactor and the walls just keep closing in to crush them. The cold got colder. The dark skies got darker. And the tension in our little town grew it didn't bring things to a grinding halt people still bartered and traded what they could and i was called upon frequently to oversee such transactions often when i was in the middle of something in exchange i was usually fed and so was my family there were no generous smiles to go with these moments they were matters of necessity and people would have been glad to hold the lines of their own little bubbles and brandish their consciousness of caste and race and lineage and all else. But no. Now they needed each other. Or else they might not survive to see or... Well, experience. Spring. It took longer for these harsh realities to sink in with some people than others. Father Igor Corbett stood outside the church hollering away for people to come in for service on Sundays, and any day he got desperate enough to play the part of the holy barker, calling for a special emergency service. I stood and watched him for a little while, the same way a child watches a wounded beetle struggle its way across a hot sidewalk. Children, God is still with you, with us, with Hayrock Glen. Now is the time to walk by faith. Not by sight. Come and have your thirsty souls quenched with the good word. I can still show you the way to peace and relief. You can't see, asshole, someone said. Father Corbett's pale face flushed Rose for a few seconds, a leftover reaction from when he was more in control of things. The blindness changed that. He went to his usual color, then went pale, then... He began weeping pearly tears under his long, black coat. Nobody was going to come into the church and hand him their money anymore. At least not until they got some firewood or food to go with the sermons. It was almost a cruel joke, the way many people besides myself had snuck past him and were sitting in the sanctuary. We mostly sat with our heads bowed. There were probably 15 or 20. Nobody spoke to one another partly so as not to alert Father Corbett that there were people enjoying God's presence, free of charge, and partly because many had no awareness of their neighbors, guided inside by a seeing companion. I dared to look around me one second too long, and I locked eyes with none other than Ron Simpson. He usually had nothing but smoldering hate for me in his eyes, but this time his gaze was gentler, not quite gentle. Gentler. They came over and sat close, so we could whisper without disturbing the over-eager priest outside. Calm. Good to see you have your sight. Good in most ways. Lots of people ask me to play broker for them. I don't know how they'll manage if I ever go back to work. What? Is the school locked up? You think teachers are going to shepherd a classroom blind? Most of them have a hard time doing it when their eyes are fine. He smirked. How is the family dealing with everything? I knew the question that was draped by those neutral words. He wanted to know how Elaine was. The one girl he almost married. Until I came along and stole her heart. Ron was a man that played the field, and always would. I think that's one of the big reasons that she let him go and he continued to play the field after she was gone. But the question mark that hung above the heads of everyone too born to do anything interesting with their lives was what if he would have gone through with it and settled down for one girl. His family isn't friendly to me for this reason. I radiated more commitment than he did. The only person that's gotten the blindness is my wife. Both of my boys are just fine for some reason. This news physically jolted him. He raised his head to slowly look at all the panes of stained glass. Then he got up and excused himself. I ruffled my eyebrows at him as he carefully exited the church. Sobs were beginning to shake Father Corbett's voice. Suddenly alone, I felt the need to chat with someone else. The plump figure of Bill Dalby was on the opposite side of me, The poor man was cursed with looking like Hitler, if the Fuhrer had eaten three square meals a day at McDonald's. He sensed my attention and looked at me with those light gray eyes of his. I almost thought he was blind until I saw his pupils. I scooched down to him. "'What do you think, Bill?' I said. He grunted. "'I think the government owes us a goddamn explanation. That's what I think.' you see any of those airplanes our boys were knocking out of the sky? They answered before I could. Blank. Spotless as cans of soup. They weren't warplanes. They were commercial. Now let me tell you, my brother over in Omaha watched half a dozen of those things fly over like they had the run of the place. And there's a base less than a mile away. You mean to tell me these things? flew all over the u.s and not one american pilot acted immediately i don't like the smell of this one son that's got dirt of all kinds all over it and just as bill's words were about to make my eyes roll he had me hanging on to every word assuming everything he said was true i glanced down at my phone and politely excused myself from bill who as usual hadn't even begun to get everything he had to say I passed by the blind father, Corbett, who could no longer speak intelligibly. He just stood and saw with his arms outstretched. Wait, was he... was he holding a collection plate this whole time? Really? (laughs) not that many would actually see him, I guess. The meek will inherit the earth, not the mewling, I said to myself. New Year's Eve came and went with utter silence. If anyone drank, they did it at home. I certainly had my share. But I had to be careful. Elaine would never see me sneaking drinks, but I didn't want to upset her radar. That wife radar that women have. It was the only secret I kept from my wife. Sorry, but sometimes a man's got to do what a man's got to do. Secrets. I wondered if Elaine kept any secrets from me. You get married, and then everything is open, including things that you thought would always be private. Somehow, the other person always ends up finding out. Somebody from your past calls for the first time in 12 years just as your spouse is the only person home. An email from a co-worker is discovered that just happens to be perfect for taking out of context. Then it hit me. It's the dead of winter. Everyone is blind. I can go through my wife's phone. One of those things you think when you're hammered. Finding my wife's phone was a breeze. Doing so with muddy coordination was more challenging than I expected. But I got it without making much noise. All of her texts were from months ago. Most of them were from me. One thread was from someone with no name just a series of hearts for the first and last name fields. My inebriated brain triple-checked that it was a separate thread from my messages. She had been talking to someone behind my back, using eager, surreptitious words that someone like me was never supposed to discover. I eventually found a message where she called him by name. Ron. must have found a way to get her attention again I felt that moment coming on where I bask in the bitterness of the revelation and try to sort out what it was that caused her to seek out greener pastures before that could happen I needed to check something else I accessed her voicemail there was one from Ron dated from the Sunday that I had run into him at church he was breaking up with her He told her that he had no interest in caring for a blind woman, and their plans were off. It was terse and cold, just the way I had always figured him. I stood by the doorway to the boys' bedroom for a long while, reviewing mental footage of me and them and her, questioning just how good of a father I really was. If... There was something a character like Ron could give them that I couldn't. Nah, he was the type that would set them up with TV dinners and candy and video games each time they would want attention. He couldn't be a father. So what did Elaine see in him that she didn't see in me? Maybe she didn't even think in terms of how her decisions would affect others. Maybe she was more like him than I ever realized. I decided to drink some more. I woke up to pounding on the front door. An officer was out the door who had clear blue eyes. Sorry to bother you, sir, but I've got an official letter for you. For your eyes only. I opened it with shaking hands and I almost couldn't believe what I was seeing. The officer paraphrased the contents as if he didn't think I could read. It's January 1st, so the local schools are all being turned into assistance and education centers for the visually impaired. You are being mandated by the federal government to serve as an instructor inside the institution and as a broker for business dealings outside. You and your family will never go hungry or cold again. He entered my kitchen and pulled out a chair and sat in it backwards. I looked at the letter, looked to him, gestured to it with one of my hands and shook my head. He smirked. I need your signature before I leave. Otherwise, I can't leave. I stared at the letter, not seeing the words. Then I saw my wedding ring on my trembling hand. I could have played the desperate, betrayed husband card and refused, just to see if they'd haul me off to prison so that my wife would get nothing. But that would mean the boys would get nothing. Nah. No, I couldn't do that. I wasn't wrong. When you say I do, you mean it. You commit to forever, no matter how long that ends up being. It was going to be a little longer for me than her from then on, but... Oh well, I had more to live for than just her. I signed the paper. We stopped out onto my porch and gazed off in the general direction of where the school buses were headed. They were filled to the brim, what with seeing drivers being a commodity. The meek shall inherit the earth, the man mused out loud. I shrugged my shoulders. I've met some really brash people without their eyesight. Well, they'll have to learn to be meek if they want to gain any independence. Right now, all those people needing your help have the system in a lockdown. We need you to help these people stand on their own two feet and see with their own two hands. I looked through the open window at my wife, who sat, rather symbolically, on the couch in front of the television as she watched the news. Perhaps the people I was going to help would see value in me that she didn't. I would let her hear Ron's message. Eventually. You've been listening to Dark Winter by author Irving Crane. Still hungry, are we? Ready for something that screams. Then without further ado, from author G. V. Anderson, I give you Whistles after dark. Dark and stormy nights work best for reckon, my dronfer always said. Excise men prefer to stay inside with a nip of brandy when it comes down hard. The fat cats lazing by the customs house fire, the lot of them. So, we could stand safe in the cliffs west of Polparo as long as we liked. That's one of my earliest memories. Eight years old and wet through. Shivering miserably for hours in the dark because we carried no lights to give us away. Gorse snug in my breeches. I kept my eyes closed against the rain most of the night. I don't think I even stirred when the shout went up. A ship's light too close to shore. Like a stray star far from home. Grandfer got me moving with a cuff round the ear. I followed the men carefully along the cliff. My finger hooked into Granfer's coat pocket so I wouldn't get lost. There were four or five of us. The men rough. They smelled musky, sour, coarse bristles covered their chins. The rain cut lines down their dirty faces, black from the mines. I was old by them. Them, when my grandfather, when more than a bit scared of their fists. Slowly, slowly, mud sucking at our ankles, we picked our way down to the beach. There'd be hundreds of them along the coast. Some of them hardly be beaches at all, but sheets of stone cut into ripples by the sea. This one, our one, was a shingle set deep within the granite cliff. large spot. I hated it. The jagged stones and shell shards always stabbed through the thin soles of my shoes. The squall had blown itself out by the time the sky paled numb and salt scabbed we were the first down by the water that morning reckon works like that we're scavengers you see a smuggling smuggling's different dangerous smuggling's what the excise men will hang us for unless we bribe them first but picking up what's washed ashore after a ships hit the rocks is all right so long as there's no crew left alive to claim it well there were someone that day. We didn't see him at first. Casks of brandy lay smashed upon waterside. Gulls squabbled over what liquor lingered in the kegs' open bellies before the men chased him off. Boats of sea-spoiled silk, and green baccy clogged the rock pools. My grandfather and his men saved what they could, pulling things further up the beach to dry out. But it was a small pile. Most of it had been lost to sea or washed up elsewhere. A man shouted at me to look for more, so I skirted the swells, licking brine from my lips, until I reached the far end of the beach. With a hiss and clatter, the water broke, dragging flotsam with it. I kicked a broken cask. A surge obliquely swept it away. I crouched there, hugging myself. But it didn't stop the ache in my belly. Life was hard back then. Folk paid heavy taxes for the war with France, and the price of grain was beyond the means of most, especially when the copper seams ran out and left the men with no wages. A side venture of liquor and baki put coin in everyone's pocket, but lame salvage makes for a leaner month. At eight years old I was just starting to learn that lesson. My guts for eating me inside out, I was so hungry. Aye, life was hard back then, but when's it not? Huh. It's cause I'd hunkered low that I saw him. The sea had set him down past the craggy rocks that cut our beach off from another smaller bank. His bare, bruised feet stuck out into the water. No one minded me. I clambered over the rocks to peer at him, hoping he'd be a Navy man. Maybe an officer. Like father. There yet. A captain. <laughs> My tiny mind spun with excitement. But the man didn't have no blue coat with shiny buttons. He looked poorer than I. No. Worse. Mama worked hard to keep me presentable. The man's waistcoat was gone. His bridge is stiff with salt. His ankles were skinny, the tendon running down, his heel sharp as a blade. Hello? I said, suddenly timid. They heard me. Raised his pallid cheek. mouth something. Water. Colin! My ground fur bellowed. I flinched. Nearly fell off the rock. What do you got over there? He was already on his way, huffing and crunching over the shingle. I waved my arms, grinned stupidly. I found someone! I didn't understand the fear in my grunt for his face at first, nor the despair in his voice as he called to the others. They were thinking with their empty bellies and the cries of their children, the pittance we'd managed to collect so far. At any moment rivals from the east could swoop in and leave us with even less. And now, this man, low as he looked, with his right to every bit of salvage. Perhaps this was kinder, yes, kinder, or at least less cruel. They'd only had died alone on the beach otherwise, drowning when the toy came in. Granfer pushed me out the way, without stopping for his men, not heeding to know what they'd say. He climbed over the rocks, fished about for a sharp piece of slate, yanked the man's head back by his ratty hair, and slashed his neck. Then he parked one fist on his hip, and waited for the dark, thick spurts of blood to stop. They'd made more fuss muttering pigs. Granfer sold the plunder for a paltry profit. Mama made it stretch somehow. She paid our rent, settled unseen debts. Such things would hardly matter to an eight-year-old. I wonder if she knew what we'd done for that money. What it cost us. I don't like to think of her turning a blind eye to murder. But then, she was Grandfur's daughter. That street runs through me too, lurid as a copper seam. Never constant, though. Not like Grandfur's. I'm sure he lost no sleep over it. But I've lain awake for many nights, thinking of the Navy man's neck, or the hollow whistle of his breath, escaping when the blood finally had done. We couldn't risk leaving his body for someone to find. The men wrapped him up in sailcloth and dropped him off the cliff. He never came back to our beach. The must have took him away. Still, that whistle. Grandfather ran goods from time to time, a proper smuggler then he was. When I got older, before I got too old to spend half my life down the mines, I helped carry the loot through the tunnels in the cliff, or else watched for the excise men's red coats while others unloaded the boats. A whistle was how we smugglers worked in the dark. It meant swag, or move it, or watch out. How many times have I stood waiting upon beach, my bones grating with cold, or sat lately by the kitchen fire, listening out for a friendly whistle? and hearing instead the wheeze of a ruined throat. "'Don't ye tell a soul, boy,' Ranfur said to me once the navy man's body stopped twitching. It were a hazy dawn, sunlight everywhere and nowhere, catching in the net of Granfur's thinning hair. When I couldn't look at him, he pinned my shoulder against the rocks with the heel of his hand, the bloody slate still pinched between his fingers, Breathe a word of this, and I'll make ye sorry, long as I live. I believed him. A life down the mines had given him a mean hunch to his back, like he was curling up on himself, storing his strength. I'd seen him swing at people in anger. Mama always fixed his knuckles afterwards. If he took a swing at me, won't she fix his knuckles first? What my face? So, I stayed quiet. I let the deathly whistle claw at me for years, even as we kept watching for wrecks. No one else washed ashore, but the ships that broke apart on the rock still spilled lives into the sea, along with their booty. Up on the cliff, we whooped and cheered our good fortune. Granfer often joked it would be the gibbet for him, It squeals at the slightest breeze, this thing. Rusted the colour of red sandstone. The cage dangles freely over Talon Bay. They say it's the best view in Cornwall. Anyway, Granfer never got the pleasure because he went in his own bed as quietly as you please. And Mama had him buried in the churchyard. Like a proper gentleman. I was head of a household at sixteen. At the funeral, Mama saw the worry on my face. She cupped and kissed it sadly. The fuzz around my jaw was darkening, but it was a child's face still. It must have pained her to see there the concern that should have been Father's. But he was at sea. Always at sea. No matter how many times I asked. No matter that other Navy men got shore leave or sent money home. We never got visits, nor any such money. Not even a letter. Eventually, I came to understand that at sea was just something Mama put about so no one asked difficult questions. We were alone then. The adult world were open to me at last. We were and had only ever been one tenuous cycle of credit and payment away from the workhouse. Mama had borrowed money to bury Grandpa properly, and my wages from the mines barely covered the interest. We lived week to week. Just the two of us. A humble living. Thankfully, neither of us needed much. Things changed when I married Elsid, who soon started popping out babies. The look on Mama's tired face when I placed Joannette, our daughter, in her arms was worth the worry of an extra mouth to feed, though she missed the chance to meet her grandson, Ruan. When our third came along, Brian, and quickly died, we cried with relief and hated ourselves for it. The war was done by then, but the price of grain hadn't recovered and copper seams all over the coast were petering out or else they glimmered beyond reach in flooded chambers no pump could drain I had little work Joe and him and Ruin were already such skinny things shorter than other children poor Brian would have starved if he'd lived perhaps it went kinder on him to leave hardly before he began yes kinder, or at least less cruel. I started wrecking again with a new crowd, running goods. The excise men had changed since I was a boy. They still served themselves, of course, but the reward for an arrest far outstripped a smuggler's bribe, and the iron gibbet saw heavier use. An old friend of Granfur's, one of the men who'd scared me so, Rotted there, even as we headed down to the beach one morning, we could hear the gulls shrieking as they packed out his eyes. A ship had gone down in the night I'd seen it the day before, sitting low and laden in the water. Lately arrived from Portugal, it had been blown off course by a vicious gale and then bested by our choppy waters. The wind whistled in the narrow chines down to the shore. It pushed urgently at my back. Upon beach, we found treasures like I had never seen before: whole boxes of saffron, dry, and perfect; thick, fragrant clumps of baggy, wrapped in oilcloth; barrels, and barrels of Portuguese wine. We found survivors too seamen staggering to their feet. Two were officers. The sea air had scored the color from their coats, but their cuffs still shone blue. The men I ran with looked at me and made a leader of me where we'd had none. Their heads turned, but their eyes came last, reluctant to let the goods out of sight. What do we do, Colin? My grandfather would have bled the survivors dry by now. That lurid streak showing itself. I said to him, What say you all? Quick now, before they get their bearings. And as soon as the words left my mouth, I knew. I knew I was no more than asking permission. I'd already made up my mind to strike first. I saw a year of good meals for my family in the saffron alone. Our rent paid. Our debts cleared, maybe even a little put aside, such things that matter a great deal when you're grown. My men felt the same, but this was not like Granfer putting some poor soul out of its misery. This was bloody, tight-lipped murder. We were matched in numbers and strength, just so it came down to our nerve. Gods forgive us we didn't even give him a fighting chance. One, I throttled, the ship's boy, I think, scrawny enough for a single hand to encircle his neck. How easy it was, and yet how hard to crush a windpipe. How long you must cling to your sin, to be sure it's done, to the lips of the dead. Turn quite blue. A sound comes from the moor where the granite backbone of Cornwall breaches the land like a whale's back. She's not coastal folk like me. Smuggling's not in her blood, nor that copper streak. Whenever the whistle came of a night, a new shipment's come. She'd narrow her eyes and ask me exactly where I thought I was going. My cot with the saffron bought her a new dress. A peace offering. She refused to wear it. I wouldn't tell her how I came to pay for it, but she knew it had something to do with my lying awake in the bed beside her, rubbing at my hands. If they fell still, the crunch of that boy's throat would tingle through the pads of my fingers. I had started to hear whistling. Outside our window at odd hours. I'd spring out of bed downstairs only to open the door and find and find nothing and something. A weight. A shadow. A judgment. Did something go wrong with the last run? LaSalle asked. She chose her moment. Our legs tangled, my hands scrunched in her air. Content, dozy after such tender coupling. What makes you think that? She yawned, draped an arm across my chest with a careful, measured ease. The restless? And the dress? My heart was hammering. Could she feel it? I rolled up and over her. And buried my face into her breasts. Won't you wear it for me? She pried me off, held me by the throat at arm's length. I'd always liked that before. If you tell me what it cost, let go. Tell me what you did. I said, let go. Her eyes glinted strangely silver in the dark a seam of tin not copper she opened her fingers and sat up with me waiting for me to speak and speak I did Granfer was ash and sod he couldn't frighten me anymore I told her about the navy man he'd killed I then told her more slowly of the men we'd drowned and the boy I'd strangled with my own bare hands. Talking about it was like telling the story of someone else's crimes. I knew I'd done it. I could still feel the ghost of the boy's grip on my forearm days later. But somehow, i tricked myself into thinking I hadn't been there at all. And now, the whistles, after dark... The heaviness outside our home. I saw, scared, out of my wits. Everything had been for the benefit of Isell, Zhawenet, and Rouen. For their comfort. I brought the devil upon them instead. You're trying to make a widow of me, you damned fool! Isel hissed, covering my mouth to muffle my cries. These dead men will come looking for ye sooner or later. Confess to em. Perhaps they'll take pity on ye. She glanced at the dress slung over the back of a chair. Burn that thing. It was folly to buy it. She was right. I be the only son of a penniless spinster. A widow if people are being generous about mama. Whore if they aren't and grandson of a known rum-runner. I never ate three square meals a day in my life, and, like a lot of folk, I often fall behind on my rent. When I purchased a new dress outright from my wife, revealing sudden, hitherto unseen riches, the news spread fast. Every morning, I held my children tight until they wriggled shyly away, let them have cores of rare tin, clean as pearls, like Iseld. God bless her. She stained her hands red, helping me move the last of the saffron, but it weren't enough. Her dress still smoldered in the hearth, refusing to burn when the excise men came for me. They call it a hanging in chains, but there's no chains, just iron bars. Below lie rocks rimmed with white sea foam, and ahead the secret beaches, the nooks and coves of my trade. The height made me dizzy at first, now thirst's taken over, but night neither matter, night's when the world goes black as the ocean depths. When the wind keens. And the rust squeals. when the dead whistle. I can't see you from up here. But I can smell the brine you bring with you. I can taste mouthfuls of wet sand. When it rains, the deluge feels like drowning. I cover my face, but the water finds a way in, every time. You've been listening to Whistles After Dark, by author G.V. Anderson. Dark Winter was written by and brought to you courtesy of Irving Crane. Irving Crane is a horror fiction author hailing from the small town of Crescent City, California, where he fishes by day and weaves tales of terror by night. When he's not working or writing, he enjoys spending time with his two dogs and taking photos as a hobby. Whistles After Dark was written by and brought to you courtesy of G.V. Anderson. G.V. Anderson is a British writer whose professional debut won the World Fantasy Award for Best Short Fiction in 2017. Her stories have appeared or are forthcoming in Strange Horizons, Fantasy and Science Fiction, Nightmare, Lightspeed, and Interzone. She is currently working on her first novel. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, Please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks, available now on audible.com. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all our other episodes, visit... SimplyScaryPodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free, and available to download or stream. Thanks so much for your time, and for giving our sponsors a try today. When you support our sponsors, you support this show. And that also means a lot to me. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases, and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the Horror Hill for yet another dance with darkness. I bid you night. Sleep tight, listener. And whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you. ...to let it in. You've been listening to Horror Hill... ...a production of Chilling Entertainment... ...and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights... ...as well as a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today... ...to learn more about our network... ...and our other amazing storytelling programs... Tonight's program was hosted, and it's featured stories performed by yours truly, Jason Hill, unless otherwise noted. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Sound design, original music, and final mixing and mastering provided by Felipe Ojeda, under the guidance of executive producer and director Craig Groschek. The program's logo was created by Craig Groschak and this week's artwork provided by Omega Black, unless otherwise noted. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at horrorhill at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of the show. If you enjoyed what you've heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, Subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode, and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and Horror Hill on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing, and leave a kind word or a request. If you can never get enough spooky stories and can't wait until next week for more, and haven't already, be sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for hundreds of free audio horror stories, including more performances from yours truly, and consider supporting us by becoming a patron at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more frightening fiction to haunt your dreams. Until next time, I'm Jason Hill. And you've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast. Good evening and sweet dreams.